Last week, if you missed it, Pastor Andy uh, got us into the story of Christmas and the fact that um, it's an unbelievable story. Uh, and it's unbelievable uh, because there are things that just don't happen. Like you read the stories, you've heard people speak about it. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a believer, you've at least heard something about um, this whole idea of Christmas and how it came to be. And so you read these stories and you're like, I know it's supposed to be inspirational, the manger scene, the wise men guys, the virgin birth, the angels meeting in a shepherd's field, you know, coming to them. But it's just unbelievable. And the skeptical part of all of us, um, some of us are more prone to that than others, not going to throw any, not pointing any fingers, just throwing it out there. Um, uh, we were like, ah, like I want to believe, but I don't know. I'm not sure about how all this happened. I can't, I mean, stuff like that doesn't happen anymore. Why doesn't it happen anymore? And, and so it's all of that. And so what we began to discover last week in this short series, Who Needs Christmas, is that what makes the event surrounding, are the events surrounding the birth of Jesus believable is that the entire story is so remarkable and the story unfolds literally over thousands of years. That's what we discovered last week. That This wasn't just something that happened in Bethlehem, but this thing started uh, thousands of years before because this sto- the Christmas story, as we said last week, doesn't begin with a young couple trying to figure out where to have their baby. It begins with an old couple wondering if they ever will have a baby, right? You remember that from last week if you were here. And as we said last week, the story begins 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ when God makes a promise to a man named Abram who later became Abraham, all the way back in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, and the promise is that through you, Abraham, every single nation, every single tribe, every single people group, every single person is going to be blessed. And ultimately, they will be blessed by what happens in a little nation called Israel that will birth a Messiah, right? Jesus Christ, the Christ, right? The entire world is going to be blessed through you, Abraham. And because apparently God knew that the world needed to be blessed because at the time of Abraham, the world was not a blessing kind of world. It was a dog-eat-dog, everybody for themselves, kill, tear down, destroy, conquer. So God made this extraordinary, this extraordinary promise because the world needed Christmas. And that's what we talked about last week. But as it turns out, And here's what we're going to talk about for the next little while here today. It wasn't just the world that needed Christmas. And this is going to sound strange, I know. But God needed Christmas as well. Now, let me try to explain that. Parents, um, you've had this feeling or this thought, or if you're not a parent, then your parents um, had this thought or this feeling. um, And and, and it goes like this. I, I sure wish my kids knew how much I love them. And in particular, come on, parents, when I ask them to do stuff and they don't do it because they apparently don't believe it needs to get done. Can I get an amen on that, parents? Right, like seriously, I just asked you to do that like one second ago and they're doing something completely different, right? I wish my kids would stop believing that I lay in bed at night trying to conjure up ways to make their lives miserable. How many of you ever felt like this, right? I I wish that my kids could hear what I asked them to do and understand that I'm really asking it because I have their best interest in mind because if they knew how I felt about them, if they knew what I imagined for their future and their lives, then maybe they would trust me. Right, parents, we've all had this experience before. 
And every parent has had that internal conversation. And maybe, maybe you've even tried to explain it to your kids. And as you're telling them, you can just see that they're thinking about something else, totally. Like, and they're thinking, can we speed this up? And their eyes are glazing over. And then they're like, hey, Dad, are you done? Because your fly's down, and I think you should do something about that. <laughs> and you're like, failure. You know what I'm saying? Come on, you've tried your best to convey something deep and powerful, and you think, I'm getting through, man. It's happening. And then they're like, your fly's down, man. So then, then the second part of that is this. If they could only see themselves the way that I see them. And for some of you who've had kids who struggle at school or with bullying or whatever, you're like, if only their friends or the people around them could see them like I do, right? Well, apparently, God, yours and my heavenly father, felt the same way. But, but think about his challenge, like for me, it's, it's challenging enough when I'm eyeball to eyeball with my, my freshman in high school or my 11-year-old fifth grader trying to get them to trust me, trying to get them to believe that I'm asking you to do this because it's good for you and you need to learn how to do this. And What do you do if you're God and you're a spirit, right? Come on, think about this. How do you convince your children that you have their best interest what, what, if you, what do you do if you're the invisible spirit of God? What do you do if you're not tangible and for generations you were seen as unknowable? Scary, right? Like all-powerful, all-knowing. How do you come and tell them this? How does God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, how does this spirit God communicate to you and communicate to me how he feels about us? His children, in, in a world that has gone completely materialistic, in a world that has turned inward and self-focused and has turned their backs on God. How does the God who holds, the Bible says, the universe in his hands communicate to you and I in a way that we can comprehend and understand. And the answer to how in the world that the, that the Spirit God communicates how much he loves this world and how much he loves you is Christmas. It's Christmas. Because in Christmas, God came down. In Christmas, God came near, and he wrapped himself in the kind of package that you and I can get on board with, a baby. Some of you are like, I don't know about that, man. Not quite, not quite there yet. God comes down to get eyeball to eyeball with us to communicate how much he loves us, and he does this through Christmas. So there's a guy named Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament of the Bible, that sort of second half of the Bible. Um, Paul, who formerly hated Christianity, who hated Christians, but then he has this amazing encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he begins to write these letters, and he writes this particular letter to some Christians living in the province of Rome, and he's trying to understand how all of this happened from that Old Testament Genesis, Abraham. He writes a lot about Abraham, particularly in Romans. And he's trying to convey to these new believers 
how they can wrap their minds around what God has done for them in Christ. And so he writes, and, and, and this is gonna set up what we are talking about today, and, and Pastor Andy talked about it last week in Galatians chapter four. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, it's also on the screen, it's in the notes there that you got maybe if you walked in. And here's what he says to this church in Galatia. He says in chapter four, verse four, but when the set time had fully come, and if you are an underliner or an right under the word fully. Other translations say in the fullness of time. Like you can imagine those of you who grow things like fruit or whatever, when the, the, the tomato is perfect, when the fruit is perfectly ready to be picked, like when it's all come together into this thing, this is the fullness of time. Uh, it's an unusual phrase, the fullness of time, uh, but the coming of Jesus was, a, was the hinge point in human history. It was the fullness of time. But what does it mean, right? In other words, when God had things exactly the way that he wanted them to be, right? When God was ready, when enough history had passed by, when enough had gone down, when enough had come together, and God knew, listen to me, God knew he could get the world's undivided attention let me break that down a little bit. We did it last week, but I want to do it again just so you understand if you missed. Think about the days of Jesus with me. Why did he come when he did? Well, in the Roman Empire during Jesus' day, there was a thing called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, meaning that the world had been at war and had been fighting each other for generations and centuries, but because of Rome's influence, their power, that had stopped for the most part, the peace of Rome. There was a lot of stability in the world, um, and for, for the first time and maybe forever, people could, generally speaking, move safely about the Roman Empire um, without being killed for various things, right? Dur during the same time, Greek had become the primary language, especially for commerce, trade, and higher education. There had never been a common language. Uh, for the first time in history, unprecedented numbers of people all across the ancient world could speak and read the same language. Fullness of time, right? Th then again in that era, because of the Roman roads, the Romans were incredible builders. Much of what they built is still there 2,000 plus years later. <clears throat> and, 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 and the Roman cities, a message could spread throughout the world with unprecedented speed. In other words, the world was connected in that moment as it had never been before in all of human history. And in many ways, it would never be connected like that again until our day, until the modern era. It was the, what? Fullness of time, the set time. And in addition to that, there was a failed temple system back in Jerusalem where money became more important than morality where corruption had replaced uh, compassion, a temple system where they believed God was important, but they weren't so sure that the people that were important to God were very important to them, the religious people, that is. Cleanliness was more important than compassion. There was an empire that had been built on violence, a temple system built on corruption, and when God had all of this just like he wanted, Paul says, when the set time had fully come, here's the next part of this, God sent his what? His son. Now, when we got to that place in history where he knew that the story would not lose traction, where it would not be forgotten, that it wouldn't slip through the cracks of history, there wouldn't be so much going on that it would happen, that, that happened in this corner of what we call now modern day Israel, that somehow it happened in such a way that the world 
would know that it happened, that it would be documented, that it would spread throughout the world. When the fullness of time come, came, Paul says, God sent his son. But here's the question that we're going to think about today because it's the Christmas question. We're going to think about two questions. Number one, why? Why did God have to send anybody? Like, why? And, and then why did God have to cram himself into a body? Why God in a body? Why not just send another messenger? That's what he'd been doing for centuries. Why not another prophet? But, but it gets even more complicated. Read on with me. But when the sad time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, now the question is not just why God in a body, but why God in a baby's body, right? That just seems like, nah. Like, let's send this dude, like Samson dude, or like Joshua. But by the way, those of you who know the Bible, you know that Joshua, Moses leads them out of Egypt, but Joshua is the conqueror. He conquers all of, the, of Canaan so that they can take up this land. And Joshua's name in the Hebrew is Yeshua. And by the way, we call Jesus Jesus, but it's really Yeshua, right? So we've been saying it wrong and singing all the wrong songs all this time. We're not going to change it now, though. Come on. They didn't have the word J, so Yeshua, Joshua. They're looking for Joshua, conquering king. That's who they're looking for, a, a warrior-type king, right? Read, read the scripture. That's who they're looking for. And you will call his name Joshua or Yeshua or Yeshua, for he shall save. Joshua is a conquering king, like a type. So why a baby, right? You, you, you track with me? So he shows up like the rest of us do and did as one of us. And, and he doesn't come here as a law unto himself. He comes into this world as a baby. And Paul's very clear to say a baby under the law. Meaning he doesn't throw away all the rule of law that, that had been established through the, the Israel culture just because he showed up. When the time was fully set, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, with a very specific purpose, which is, verse 5 says, to redeem those or to rescue those under the law. So why did God send Jesus? Why does God need Christmas? It was to do what laws and regulations, centuries of them, had not been able to do. It was to do what judges and prophets and even kings had never accomplished. It was to do what exile and punishment, which had been their story for centuries, could not do. It was to do what not even the sacred text could accomplish. God wanted to do something for you personally. And a message or another messenger wouldn't get it done. He wanted to do something personal. So God needed to do something relational. In order to get it done, God needed Christmas, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive what? Adoption to sonship. Now, think about what he's saying here, that God didn't just show up for nations and for people groups and for, for tribes, but he showed up for individuals to create a personal an opportunity for a personal relationship with himself to make them his, look at the last word, sons, daughters. 
This was personal, so he had to come personally. Are you following me? Think, think about this. It was going to be personal, so God had to come in person. So, so at just the right time, the, the fullness of time, God staged a demonstration, you guys. Right? Because we know that actions speak louder than words, even words like the Bible written on a page. It had to be a demonstration that would get documented, that would be documented in such a way that it could spread quickly throughout the world. And this was the fullness of time. And never before in human history had there been such a time as this. You do, why do, why do people do demonstrations? Like the, we live in a world filled with them. Some of them are good and some of them are going, what? What is that about? You know, come on, is it just me? Probably shouldn't have said that. Now you're gonna demonstrate against me after we leave today. Anyways, you do a demonstration to get what? Attention. To change things. To get a message across. Right? That's why people demonstrate. That's why they fill the streets. That's why they block roads. That's why they carry signs. Right? They're demonstrating to get attention for their message to go forward so that things will, what? Change. So God knows this, God does a demonstration. And it had to be a demonstration in history on planet Earth that could be documented in such a way that for hundreds and hundreds and now even thousands of years, people would know about it, people would talk about it, people would live under the awareness and the reality of it. Now, now think about this, because I don't want you to miss the gravity of the history of the story of Christmas. That 4,000 years ago, like, we don't even know how to process that. And that's not even very long, really, in, in terms of the scope of things. God promised he would do something to a guy named Abram, who became Abraham. 2,000 years later, the promise gets fulfilled when a little baby is born, right? And don't miss this. 2,000 years after that baby's born, we're still talking about it. Fullness of time. Set time. Perfect time. Now think about all that's happened in the past 2,000 years. Most of it, we don't know about it. Like you can't name the names, you don't know the dates, you can't give us the details. You can't even remember the stuff you learned last week at school. Come on, kids. Right, once you pass the test, you're like, I'm, lo I'm losing that information, now I'm going back to selfies and stuff, right? Just kidding. The adults do that more than you guys do. Anyways, just moving right along. Hey, we don't even know, man. I know that something happened in 1812. I, I have that as a recollection. It was some sort of war. I got no idea who was involved. Help a brother out, teachers. Come on, somebody. Right, don't do that. We don't have time for all that. Like, we don't even know what happened last week, right? We lose sight of what happened last month. And yet, think of it. The birth of a Jewish baby in the armpit. Listen, like, for me, when I'm driving through from here to, like, Mississippi and Florida, I drive through a lot of armpits. Can I get an amen, everybody? Louisiana, all an armpit. Come on, just, if you're from Louisiana, uh, we love you. But there's a lot of armpit going on in there, man. Mississippi, dear Lord, that's the, like the smelly part of the armpit. Alabama, are you serious? Come on, aren't you glad you live in Texas? Come on, amen. Some of you are from other places, and you're like, this guy's making me bitter right now. Hang with me, I'm just messing around with you. I lived in almost all of those states, all right? But they are armpits. Now, in Jerusalem... They are. Uh, it's hot, it's humid, it's awful. There's nothing. There's dead things along the road. That's all I know. Anyways, there's dead things here, but we scoop them up and move them, or we eat them. We eat them here. Uh, 
free meat, you know. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's been a while since I preached up here, so give me a break, all right? Anyways, now you're remembering, ah, oh, we liked it when he was on video. He didn't make so many gum mistakes. All right, anyway. Like, it's the armpit of the Roman Empire. And a baby born in the armpit of the Roman Empire becomes a household name, right? We all know Jerusalem now, don't we? But we know it because it's on the other side of Christmas, right? But pre-Christmas, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, which is the birthplace of the Savior, they were dots on a gigantic map, and, G- map, and Jesus was a baby, a dot on the dot. So it's absolutely remarkable that this story gets out at all. When the set time had come, when the time was perfect, when God knew it would not slip through the cracks of history, he sent his son, Paul says, into the world, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law so that we might experience sonship, a kind of adoption into the family of God. It had to be a demonstration that could be documented, and it was. And so, Apostle Paul, when he's writing his complex letter to the Christians at Rome, and by the way, just let me segue for just a second here or run a rabbit trail, the fact that there were Christians in Rome so soon after the birth and the death of Jesus spoke to the fact of the power of the resurrection. Like it was real, y'all, because listen, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands, literally thousands of people within just a few short years had embraced Jesus as their savior all the while living under the emperor Nero who burned Christians. And in his capital city, there are thousands of Christians who are living there in spite of the, f- of the fear of being burned at the stake. Rome is 2,500 miles away from Jerusalem, which might as well be to the moon, right, in that time. And again, Jerusalem is the armpit of their empire, and yet 2,500 miles away from the armpit was a bunch of people who were following the risen Jesus shortly after his death and resurrection. This is an unbelievable thing. And so he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome, and here's what he says. Chapter five, verse eight. But God, what? Demonstrates. You thought I was kidding when I said demonstration. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were, what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's our word, but God demonstrates. What God demonstrated, he showed up, he acted it out. He didn't just send a messenger. He didn't just tell us about it with some pages, but God demonstrates. And what does God demonstrate? His love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this is an amazing statement, and, and let me tell you why. Because when Paul wrote this, these letters, he wrote this in the present tense. While we were still sinners, present tense. We read that and we go, wait a minute, uh, Danny, uh, Jesus died uh, a long time before I started sinning. I wasn't even born yet. No, no, but, but, but think about it from Paul's perspective. When Paul is writing this, he's in the present. It's dawned on him. This was personal for him. While I, Paul, was still sinning, while I was still resisting, before I even knew that God had made it deeply personal by coming to this world, while I was still sinning, Christ died for me. And this had to be overwhelming to Paul. Paul, who before Christ changed his life, went on a personal mission. Like it was his mission 
to get rid of Christians, to get rid of Christianity, to arrest Christians, to put Christians to death. Now, I don't mean he thought about doing these things. I mean he actually arrested them and had them put to death. And he's thinking to himself as he pens all of this, God knew what I was going to do. God knew my passions and my proclivities. God knew that I would be a one-man wrecking machine when it came to arresting Christians and having them stoned and put to death. And I don't mean stoned in a Colorado way. Come on, somebody. I'm I'm about to bash every state in the union today. Anyway, (laughs) kidding. Love Colorado and Alabama and all the other ones. Listen, Paul's thinking, God knew what I was about to do. And while I was still a sinner... While I was going to become the kind of guy who plotted the death of his followers, Christ died for me. And it dawns on him that Jesus' death was a demonstration. His birth was a demonstration of how much he was for us. How much he was for me, Paul. But this brings us to another question, the second question I referenced a moment ago. And this this is a question that perhaps you've asked and maybe you weren't even sure I should ask this out loud. Maybe you're afraid to. You're like, am I gonna get lightning bolted for asking this? No, right? Why in the world, if he had to come and be born here, why did he have to die? Like it's confusing enough that God crammed himself into a baby's body, but why did he have to grow up and die? Why, Why such a violent and public demonstration? Why the blood, the gore, the the crown of thorns? Why was he beaten? Why did he have to bleed to death publicly? Because that's what he did. Why why couldn't couldn't Jesus just pronounce everybody forgiven, like wave his hands, you know, like, whoa, there we go. Everybody's good, right? Why why couldn't he just get up on the hillside before he ascends into heaven as we read in the Gospels and say, okay, hey, hey, everybody, listen, 500 of you here, I want you to go tell the world this. Before I leave, that everybody is forgiven. All of your sins are forgiven. You get a car. You get a car. You get a new motorcycle. Everybody gets one. Everybody's going home with this, right? You can have eternal life. When you, when you die, you'll go to heaven. Spread the good news. Everybody's forgiven. I'm out. And then just fly away, right? Like, that's much better, right, seemingly? Right? Why didn't he just do that? A couple of reasons. Number one, nobody would have believed him. In fact, he does this occasionally. In the Gospels, you read these stories, they'll heal somebody and they'll go, oh, like as an afterthought, oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. And people are like, you can't do that. And all these religious people would like want to throw rocks at him and kill him because you can't do that. Like, like you can say, I forgive you because you wronged me, but you can't say, oh, and all of you, you're forgiven for everything that you've ever done to all these other people who haven't forgiven you yet. And even the stuff you're gonna do against God, you're forgiven. And they're like, nobody can do that, man. Nobody would have believed him. Because he did stuff like that and they didn't believe him and they wanted to stone him for saying it. And, and it would have, this story, if he had said that, hey, everybody, it's all good. Good, it's all good, you know. Like if he'd done that, it, it might have made it out. Of the, but it wouldn't have made it out of the first century if he'd just done that. Because they would just think, he's a crazy man. Who's gonna believe a crazy man? He can't do that. Only God can do that. And you're not him, you're dude. We saw you die, Right? But more importantly, here's the reason that Jesus had to die. Here's the reason Jesus had to come in a baby's body. Here's the reason God sent his son into the world to grow up among us as one of us, 
and, and, and the reason he had to die a violent death and to demonstrate his death, public death, in front of so many people who saw him die and for it to be documented to the point that we're talking about it today, right now. Here's why. Kind of a confusing explanation, but stay with me. I'll explain it. Because God is the author of life. He's the author of your life. He's the author of my life. And when you reject the author of life, when you dishonor the source of life, you dishonor God. And to dishonor the source of life is an expression, the worst kind of expression of ingratitude. The Bible says deserving of the forfeiture of life. It's sin. And Romans, earlier in in Romans, Paul says the wages or the penalty of sin is what? Is death. When you, when you denounce the author of life, you deserve to lose your life. Now, hang with me as I unpack this a little deeper. After the resurrection, after Jesus rose from the dead, he sends his followers to Jerusalem. He says, go and wait in Jerusalem until you are, you, the old King James says, until you're endued with power from on high, Acts 1 and 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He says, go wait until that happens. And after a few weeks, several days later, they come into the very streets of Jerusalem. They've all scattered because Jesus was killed. They're being threatened with death. And so they all scattered, but they come back to the very same streets, the very same roads where Jesus had just been dragged outside the city, dragged through the streets, carrying a cross on his back, crucified. They're in the company of the very people who had Jesus arrested and crucified. And so here's Peter and John, and they go to the temple, and there's a lame man on the, temp- on the way, and they heal this guy through the power of the name of Jesus, right? And, and so all these people go, and this is in Acts chapter three, by the way, they're at, they're at Solomon's porch, Solomon's colonnade, and all these people are like, hey, what did you just do right there? We've seen this guy for years. He was not able to walk, and all of a sudden he's jumping around praising God, right? We're like, what, what just happened? And so they're now eyeball to eyeball with the very people who had Jesus killed. And here's what they say in Acts 3, verse 14. You disowned the holy and righteous one. And you asked that a murderer be released to you. And matter of fact, if you don't know the story, they, Pilate, the governor of the city, says, hey, this guy's not guilty. He's talking about Jesus. Let, let me give you one of these other guys instead um, like, let me, let me release Jesus and we're gonna kill this guy Barabbas in his place or whatever. And they're like, no, no, give us Barabbas. Give us a thief. Give us the taker of life instead of the giver of life. This is what they do. And then this next line. They stare into these same men and women who had, this, who had Jesus killed. They're dangerous people. And here's what they say to them. Verse 15. You killed the author of life. But God... Every time you see the word, but God, it's a game changer. But God raised him from the dead. And we all, we all saw it for ourselves. We are witnesses of this. Now, Now check this out. Implication, God allowed you, the author of life allowed you to take his life. He gave his way his life because you cannot take the life of the author of life unless he decides to let you do so. Come on, how many of you ever let your kids beat you in arm wrestling, dads? Come on. They can't beat you unless you let them. Can I get an amen on that? My wife has no chance against me, man. It's just like mud. Like I'm just dealing with nothing. You know what I'm saying? 
And I mean with my pinky. Come on, babe, I'm sorry about that. But it's true. Unless I decide to let her, she can't do it. My kids certainly can't do it. Not yet, anyways. I'm bowing up. You know what I'm saying? You can't take the life of the author of life unless he decides to let you. Amen? You killed him, but God raised him from the death, dead so that, and we are witnesses that God sent his son to this world as a baby to grow up among us so that he could give what we could not give, so he could pay what we could not pay, so what we owe that we could not pay, he would take care of the debt, and he is the author and he's the giver of life. And Jesus' death demonstrated the magnitude of the ingratitude, the severity of our offenses, that even as people that live in this day, we disregard the author of life. We thumb our noses up at him and say, I'm going to do life my own way. You do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. I'm not even sure you're really there. We deserve to lose the supply, the Bible says, when we thumb our noses at the author of life. Jesus' death demonstrates the magnitude of, of our ingratitude. At the same time, his death demonstrates the magnitude of his love for us. And you cannot demonstrate love without sacrifice. Love must be shown to be known. Love must be shown to be known. Love must be shown to be known. So how does God, who claims to love the world, how does he do so in a way, how does he demonstrate it in a way at a personal level that is, he loves you and me? The only way to make to do this is to make a sacrifice that people will know about and talk about for years and years and years and hundreds and centuries because you cannot demonstrate love without a sacrifice and you cannot demonstrate great love without great sacrifice. Let me give you a perfect and yet awful example of what I mean by this, of how much I love my wife. On Thursday night, I'm sleeping and one of my children, she will remain nameless today. She comes to me at one in the morning and says, Dad, Dad, I'm sick. And I'm like, what is happening right now? You ever have a kid shake you in the middle of the night? It might as well be a ghost because you're so freaked out but there's a child in your face. You don't ever do it graciously. They get in your face. Come to the music so people will think this is about to be ended. All right, anyways. She's like, I threw up in the other room. And I just stand there and go... Come on, man. Sure, this is a dream. So I get a bucket, I put her in another space, and she wants to get in my bed, and I'm like, no, no. The germs, man, I don't want that. Go over there, be over there. So I walk in there, and I see what's happened. And I just begin to weep softly to myself. How has this happened? And every part of my fibers want to go wake up my wife. <laughs> like I feel like this is a dual project. I feel like this is even part of our wedding vows, for better or for worse. Like this is a, a dual project, you know, where like I get all the stuff together while you do this thing, you know? <laughs> so I take care of the child, and I get on my knees, man. And it's just, it's a vast ocean. <laughs> it's on walls, it's in door cracks, it's in crevices, it's, it's in grout. Why the grout? Hour and a half cleaning this nightmare. 
you know, and just like, you know, you're the whole time. <laughs> I wake up the next day. My wife says, thank you so much for not waking me up to do that. Can I tell you, she knows now how much the love I have for her in my heart. <laughs> Danny demonstrated his love towards Rachel in that he did that. <laughs> Cleaned it up for hours. I didn't go to bed till three. You'll never know how much somebody really loves you, right? Until you see what they're willing to sacrifice for you. Totally imperfect, right, the story. But God, who's perfect, demonstrates his love for us even that while we were still sinning, he died for us. Romans 5, again, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, meaning we had no help, no way to do this on our own. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That salvation had a monstrous penalty. The price tag is the death of a spotless lamb. And God sends Jesus as a baby to become the sacrificial lamb to pay price for you and for me that we would never be able to pay on our own and he paid it all so God needed Christmas he needed Christmas to demonstrate and document his love for this rebel race and so God staged the demonstration and documented it so that the world would know world would know so that 2,000 years later we'd still be talking about it we needed to know the story we needed to know the story was about us and it wasn't enough to say it he had to send his son to pay the price that we owed in such a way that once that once we embraced this truth of the story and once we embraced the sacrifice that was made on our behalf we would never ever ever doubt God's love for us before we go, I cannot imagine ending a message like this without giving someone the opportunity, somebody watching online, Facebook later, or somebody who hears this message a year later on a podcast without giving you the opportunity to respond. And John, Jesus' best friend, who knew him best, says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that little phrase, believe in, really just means to trust. And that trust isn't a magic word. It's belief isn't a magic word. There's not a spiritual version of trust and a secular version of trust. It's just like you and I trust anything. Like I trust this stool to hold up my weight, right? Because otherwise it would go horribly bad for me. Right? To, to become a follower of Jesus is simply to say, God, I believe that Jesus was your son that you sent in this world to be born at Christmas, to die at Easter, 
for my sins and I'm placing all of my weight on his death for my sin to be my to be the payment for my sin I'm placing all my trust in, in the fact that his death on the cross has paid for all of my sin that's what we mean that's what, what John means I believe that in my heart and I speak that with my mouth. And in that moment, according to the scriptures, in that moment, according to what Jesus taught and the apostle Paul would later elaborate on, in that moment, you become exactly what Paul said in Galatians 4, a son or a daughter of God. That's what happens in that moment. What happens to you is what Paul described. You are in that moment adopted into the family of God because you have received freely what God has offered freely, the very thing that you could never manufacture on your own, a right relationship with God. So if there's ever been a time in your life, or should I say if there's never been a time in your life where you've ever prayed a prayer like that, I'm gonna invite you to do that with me now. And the prayer doesn't make you a Christian. The prayer is simply how we express the fact with our mouth that we are transferring our trust from our own goodness to what God through Christ has done on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just come to you right now. God, we're trying to grasp. And some of us, I think for the first time, we've had an aha moment where we see what Christmas is about. What, what was accomplished in Christmas. It's starting to come together now. Realizing what's been done for us. And maybe, maybe we prayed a prayer a long time ago, but there's been a lot of water under the bridge. Maybe we've lost some faith. Maybe there's been some doubt. Maybe there's been some stuff. Or maybe we've never prayed this, but today, Lord, we come to you and we just say, God, I believe. I trust that Jesus died for my sins, that he paid the price for my sins, all of them, the ones I've committed, the ones that I'll ever commit. He paid the price for all of them. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose again. I believe that he wants to give me brand new life. Put all of my weight and all of my trust that it's not about my goodness. It's not about my worthiness. It's about his. I trust him. I speak that with my mouth. I confess him as, as Lord of my life. I invite him to be the Lord of my life. I do that right now in the name of Jesus real quickly while nobody's looking around just yet would you just slip up your hands if this was the first time or maybe it's been a long time would you just let us see your hands across this room today if that was you thank you thank you thank you so much thank you amen can the rest of us just celebrate come on can we just celebrate what God's done amen